Welcome to the podcast Ladies First, Wise Women Talking. My name is Miriam and I'm sitting here with Feli, my co-host. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Feli. We created this podcast to uh, give older women a voice because we think that older people in general in our society don't get enough recognition, even though that we can learn a lot from their adventures, their life stories, their wisdom. And if you haven't heard our first two episodes yet, you can always go back and catch up on them. That's uh, worthy to listen to, obviously. And today we have another wonderful lady for you. We want to introduce Lee Zevit, who is in her mid-70s. Hello, this is Felicitas and Miriam. And we met her in Chelsea in her apartment on a very hot New York summer day, which you can tell from the audio quality because we had to leave all the windows open that were possible there. And in that apartment, she's living with her three-year-old dog and at least four cats. I say at least because we saw four, but we were discussing the other day. It might be another cat somewhere <laughs> hidden. Yeah, and Lee is a gay woman who accomplished a lot in love and life. And um, let's just listen to her story. I've been a human rights activist all my life with a focus uh, as an adult on lesbian feminism and uh, LGBT rights, but I uh, started in civil rights in 1963. I went to the March on Washington, did a lot of the protests that were set up by Bayard Rustin in New York, uh, joined the Congress for Racial Equality, did a lot of protesting, and from there started in the women's movement protesting. <laughs> the gay rights movement protesting. Doesn't stop. Well, I started in the in the sixth grade when my teacher decided that the boys should have five minutes more time to play basketball. And another girl and I started to protest and get a petition signed by the girls, which enraged the teacher who was an Irish Catholic woman in her, I guess, 50s at that point, 60s, who was outraged that we would dare to flaunt, you know, our authority. But they never gave the boys the five minutes. And my mother was very political, so I grew up understanding about race and class and politics and um, how to organize. And then in my 20s, started in civil rights and then went from there. Mm -hmm. And I sort of never stopped. And through her activism, this is actually how we got to know her, because a good friend of mine was working as a coach and volunteer in a peer counseling center in New York. I'm one of the founders of uh, Identity House, which is uh, a walk-in peer counseling and psychotherapy community mm -hmm. mental health center mm -hmm. that started in 1971 to counsel LGBT It was LGB in those days, and then TQI mm -hmm. added recently uh, people. And um, what's happening currently is uh, a lot of people on vacation, for example, coming in from all over Indonesia, China, Thailand, uh, South America, Europe, who uh, come from either repressive communities or repressive families, walk into the walk-in center, and they can talk about being gay for the first time. This uh, organization uh, doesn't exist almost anywhere else. 
back in the 70s, I was working as a caseworker, and a friend and I wanted to start an organization to help people who needed advice. And we went to Philadelphia to investigate a phone service helpline called Help. And we came back, and Michael heard about uh, the formation of a new counseling service for the LGBT community. And Mike and I had both come out to each other along the way and had become friends. So we, we go to this meeting, and uh, it's attended by uh, humanistic and gestalt therapists, a couple of existential therapists. Mm -hmm. Foreign to me, because um, I was sort of raised, um, my father was a fireman who became a psychotherapist, and my mother was enamored of psychoanalysis. So I was raised with a psychoanalytic background. So this was a very unique experience to meet these people because gestalt therapy, uh, which is where I ended up focusing, is a therapy that focuses not only on the here and now but on creativity and process. So we got together and we um, opened the walk-in center in the bottom of a church. People would walk up and down, up and down on the sidewalks trying to get the courage to come in because they were terrified. We're talking 1971, so Stonewall riots had happened only in 1969. Psychology in general, that was her life, her big passion. Yeah, and she sort of found a way to combine it with things that were important to her, such as social change, social justice and equality, fair living and treatment for everybody. And so we wanted to know what drove her all these years to stay strong and keep fighting for her values. We actually had hope back then that we could change things, that, the, that what we did would actually make a difference. And it did, and it does. So on my good days, I'm very optimistic because I think the Internet is not only bringing the planet together but making it uh, very impossible for anyone to commit crimes without somebody knowing about it. And that's a really good thing. The planet's on the move right now. We've had periods in history where there's mass movements across uh, national lines, across country lines, city lines, and that's happening right now. So on my good days, I think, you know, something's going to come out of this because there are geniuses in pockets who have solutions to the problems. On my bad days, I think, well, we may not make it, but it doesn't stop me from fighting. Always strong, always fighting for others for what she thought is right. But how difficult was it for her to live her le as a lesbian in her life? How did her family react to it in a time when it wasn't as common as today? Both my parents were a product of the Depression in the 30s, and um, they had to make very hard choices. My father wanted to study medicine, and he couldn't. So uh, during the Second World War, he went into the Navy as a corpsman, for two reasons. One, because he was Jewish and he felt it was important to fight 
And the other reason was that he wanted to get GI Bill benefits. So, and during the war, my mother uh, worked in an aircraft uh, plant until she got a hot chip in her eye, and then she had to stop that, and then she would do waitressing, and she would do uh, nails and manicuring. She knew how to tailor. She was a musician. My parents were very uh, progressive, very talented people, so I grew up expecting that I could do different things in different ways. I wasn't pigeonholed. However, that being said, I hit my uh, 20s around 1962. So in the 50s, it was a very conservative period of time because it was post-war and uh, everybody thing was supposed to go back to normal and normal meant women in the home and uh, men working and supporting the families. So I was raised to be manicured and perfectly coiffured and, you know, the days of starching crinolines and they had stockings with... <laughs> you had to keep your stockings seamed straight because it went down the back of your leg. And of course, it was never me. You know, I was a tomboy from the very beginning, which is often a precursor to being gay. And, um, you know, it was a fight from one end to the other until I got away from the family <laughs> and started to form my own life. I got kicked out of college three times because I was too involved in civil rights. So I had my first relationship with a woman at 17 and um, then switched to, had a four-year relationship with a black man, which didn't go over too well, and then went back to women for the rest of my life. And it was her mother, actually, who introduced her to the love of her life. In 67, I was just finishing college, and my mother called, and she was working at a hospital as an executive secretary. And she said there was a job opening, at French Hospital, which was a small hospital on 30th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. My mother said there was a job opening for a secretary, and I was still finishing college. So, And then she was raving about this fabulous woman, Lucy, who had the most exciting wit and the most intelligence and the, the brightest and the best. And then she told Lucy about me, and I was 25 at the time, and that I was her most gorgeous, most intelligent daughter. So I start working at the hospital. Lucy's uh, running the nuclear medicine lab at the time. She's 37. We looked at each other, and <laughs> we didn't know what my mother was talking about. <laughs> my mother was a party girl. She'd been around the block. She was highly sophisticated. She, I guess, had a feeling that we would really hit it off. So Lucy was struggling with um, uh, what's known as a Hashimoto's thyroiditis and she was getting sick, so I used to go down to her lab and help out. You know, it was the early days of nuclear medicine, so you had to be very, very careful with the chemicals that were being injected into people. Lucy had gone to Italy in the 50s to study medicine, and she'd lived there for six years. Gradually, she would start telling me stories about Italy, and magic started to happen. So, you know, I would tease her and say, I'm going to go out with other women. And she would, unbeknownst to me, 
because I thought she'd been involved with men up until then. It was a year later that she told me she had a 10-year relationship with a woman. But um, we started seeing each other. And um, Lucy lived upstate and had uh, four dogs. And I started going up there, loved the house, loved the property, loved her, and um, moved up there. And except for a five-year separation, we were together for 50 years. So Lucy passed away January of 2017. So I'm single for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, a love story almost like a fairy tale, even though, and especially and because, it was still a very difficult time to be and live openly gay. So in 1971, when I went to the meeting with Identity House, I started getting involved with them. And at the same time, I was, so by 1973, I had started attending training in Gestalt therapy so my life was more and more down here. And by 75, I needed an office. So I got an apartment in this building mm -hmm. in 1975. It was a studio downstairs. It was $205 a month. And then within, a, and then within a year, <laughs> this apartment became available. So I moved upstairs, and this was $295 a month. But you have to understand, my first job at Klein's department store as a cashier in the late 50s, I was making a dollar five cents an hour. Yeah, a lot of things changed since then. Rents are much higher in New York today. But um, the view on living openly gay, of course, certainly changed to the good. I mean, it's still difficult. Op there are still obstacles out there, but it's much easier. And Lucy kind of had the best way of tolerance with just not caring what people thought. Lucy is a sort of a unique person in that she had this relationship with a woman in the 50s and never thought about it, right? To her, it was a unique relationship. Whatever Lucy decided to do, she did without worrying about what people thought. She had an uncanny ability and a self-confidence to not really notice that being gay was a problem. <laughs> so... In 1971, when I got involved with Identity House, we were forming the organization between 71 and 72, and we would have these endless meetings in which, you know, of course it was the early 70s, people would bring out the wine and the food, and we would sort of party while we were working. And Lucy would wait for me to go back home. So one day she walks in, she walked with a cane in those days, because the, the hip was giving her a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. So here, here I am going to these meetings and we're partying until all hours. And we, it was completely creative process. So Lucy comes in and bangs her cane on it and says, okay, this has to stop. And from now on, there's going to be no partying until you finish working. <laughs> and so she became the first executive director. <laughs> I became the coordinator of peer counselors. And um, we opened for business. I love what I do, and I love talking to people. As a kid, I would psychoanalyze my friends, which didn't go over too well. But 
I always love talking to people. I was always curious. Uh, I'm one of those people. I read science because I think psychotherapists should know science, which most of them don't, because they think if they only know the mind, it's sufficient. It isn't. We're a holistic beings. We're holistic beings. You can't separate one from the other. So I read science. I read you know, coaching materials, I read business materials, I read, I read, and I watch a lot of television. That's my transitional relaxation, mm-hmm. is to come home and watch a TV show, because it has a beginning, middle, and end, and psychotherapy never does. So you're still working regularly there? Yeah, yeah, I work, um, I work Monday evenings, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and not Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Sunday. Right now, I'm starting to write a memoir of uh, Lucy, me, and then us. <laughs> and I write papers. I teach. I do a lot of workshops. I'm going to one in uh, two weeks in Toronto and teaching oh. two workshops. Yeah, she certainly doesn't stop, which is amazing and which gives us always, or me, the calm to say, well, I still have so many years, but you really have to do it if you have a dedication in your life and a passion for something it's so important to keep on believing in in your values and just go on with it and i think that is something that leaves certainly living a good really good example for and um quality and human rights were always one of the strong things that she tried to fight for And um, I'm I'm pretty sure that she made a or has a huge impact on on how in the last 40 years being gay has maybe changed openly being gay. Yeah, which is an interesting question since we the two of us we are not gay. We don't really know. We just have a have an overview like from an outside perspective. Perspective. So it was also interesting to see how she thinks that life for gay people actually did improve and society is uh, more accepting of them. We progressed in pockets, we progressed in certain countries, and we progressed in certain families and communities. In others, there's very little, if any, progression. New York has just outlawed conversion therapy this week, so people are still practicing conversion therapy even though everybody knows it doesn't work. So it depends on where you are and where you're from. Um, I always say that the modern version of coming out of the closet is that each day in each situation, you're always trying to figure out whether you're going to come out as gay or not. So depending upon who you're talking to, depending upon where you are, you're always figuring out what to wear, what to look like, how to present yourself, and how to communicate. So what exists today that existed back then is you're always trying to figure out how to relate your gay identity. Now, a lot of people who live in certain environments, it push it to the background. It's not an issue for them, particularly um, the younger people um, don't have an issue as long as they stay within a certain area. When they go outside that area, they're often very surprised and shocked when they get backlash. And uh, the trans community in particular is right now the most vulnerable community. I work with trans people, I work with trans couples. It's a very vulnerable population. It destabilizes people's sense of 
gender and that makes people angry. People want this is this and this is this and it's sort of a human beings like to make patterns because it's uh, efficient and it's economical to do that. So gender is one of those critical patterns because once, once you don't have a pattern, then you have to relate to the situation as it presents itself. And that's more difficult, takes more time, takes more energy. The other thing is people don't like to think a lot. When freedom means you have to think and you have to plan and you have to make decisions. It's a tough call. I realized years and years ago is that, you know, we may want uh, what they call cisgendered people now. I call them straight people. You know, <laughs> we want them to understand gay life. They never will because it's not their life and they're not, it's not of interest to them. It's of interest to us and we want everybody to be interested. It's a human phenomenon to want people to be interested in what you are. But they're not and they're not going to be. Mm. So, you know, there's this constant feeling of dislocation when somebody doesn't understand you. In, in the 60s and 50s, when I started coming out, you knew it was dangerous to be gay. So you had all sorts of tricks that you would use. So in college, for example, there was a table in the snack bar where this guy Seymour sat. Now Seymour was a man, probably in his 40s at that point. I thought he was older. And wherever Seymour sat, the lesbians sat. So you knew wherever Seymour was, you would find gay women. <laughs> Don't ask me why <laughs> Seymour attracted gay women, <laughs> but he did. <laughs> So you sort of started to develop a sense about where safety lay and where it didn't. We had certain code words, are you a friend of Judy? Because Judy Garland was a, a gay icon. And, you know, if somebody was wearing a pinky ring back then, you thought maybe they were gay. Uh, all the novels of the time, the lesbian had to die at the end. So she had to kill herself because she couldn't live with being gay. So this is the stuff that we grew up with. So even though it was dangerous, it didn't stop me. And definitely never stopped Lucy. I mean, whatever she wanted to do, she just did. Without much thought that it was going to be a problem for her. She would just, she had a look. And she would look at people that said, don't fuck with me. And they stayed away from her. You know. I tried for years to develop that look. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it. You wrote in your email that you feel that gay people need role models. How was it for you? Were there role models for you? And do you think that it Change. Yeah, no, um, I looked for older gay women to be models, um, and um, Arthur was a model. He was Jamaican, Bermudan background, raised in Spanish Harlem, and had a very similar kind of confidence to Lucy's, because Jamaicans have a different relationship to being black than uh, Southern 
uh, African Americans do, not being raised here. And uh, when I would go to his house, his father would say, Atta, how come you bring them white hookers home? <laughs> and Arthur would say, he's just a crazy old man. <laughs> so <laughs> for a year, I lived with Arthur in the South Bronx, which was an entirely black neighborhood. And it gave me a very deep understanding of the kind of difficulties that uh, African Americans were facing back then. Um, because as violent as it was now, there was an entire societal acceptance of violence back then. So, um, and we were doing a lot of civil rights work and protest, and the cops would, you know, ride up with their horses and think nothing of trampling people who were protesting. Because back then, you know, there were no African Americans being hired by the news. Um, you never saw fake black faces on television except as entertainers, maybe Sammy Davis Jr. And uh, at one point we would do uh, apartment busting because the law had passed against um, discrimination. So Arthur would go with uh, another black woman to a house and of course they would be denied, be denied uh, a rental. And then I would go with a, a white guy and we would of course get accepted. And because back then I was blonde and blue-eyed. And um, uh, then we would take them to court. What I think is so remarkable about her is that she not only fought for lesbian rights and gay rights, but she also always had in mind to fight for human rights and to look out for other minorities who are not being treated uh, equal. And um, I think that is really something that you can take away from her life story is that if you have values on a general level, don't only look for yourself in an egoistic way and try to improve your life, but yeah. also try to, to see who you can help others. Yeah, equality is always easy when you're actually fighting for yourself and when you're saying, I want equal rights. But sometimes, you know, even out of a perspective, you know, maybe where, where you don't have all kinds of disadvantages in life, even then it's really important to fight for equality because there is only equality if everybody is fighting for everyone. And that's certainly something that Lee did and Lucy did with her. Yeah, talking to people, being involved, changing things as much as we can in our lives. That is something that Lee and Lucy both are, have been doing and um, their work in the identity house, a big part of what they're doing is talking with people or what Lee is doing is talking with people about their fear. First I have to understand where their fear is coming from. Then I have to understand the background because if they've had traumatic experiences in childhood, the fear will be exponentially greater if it touches on what these triggers are. And then we have to work on ways to compress life so that it doesn't become as big and scary because um, we do better when we follow certain steps, when we secure, for example, you know, the, uh, our home life. You know, moving constantly creates tremendous instability. Moving jobs creates tremendous instability. Moving relationships creates tremendous instability. So it's a question of working with people to start securing the ground so that they feel that something at least feels permanent. 
because uh, this isn't going to go away anytime soon, right? We're in a tremendous period of upheaval. We have a tremendous period of instability. But I've lived through these before. So one thing I keep telling people is, look, I lived through McCarthy. I lived through Nixon. We'll live through Trump. You know, what do you want to do about it? What do you want to do about it? You know, join organizations. Look up, you know, civil disobedience. People your age I talk to don't understand civil disobedience. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand how to do it. So part of what I do is to educate. And we have little sprinklings. I'm waiting for the catalyst. You see, in the 70s, the catalyst was the war because they were drafting young men and they were getting killed. And uh, so that became a catalyst for countrywide protesting. We need a catalyst. There are groups like Gays Against Guns after the Pulse shooting that do major protests and get arrested. Nobody publishes what's happening with them. So nobody knows that there are these groups that are doing these kinds of protests. So everybody has to create a life. You have to deliberately create a life that not only creates security, but also gives you an avenue for your anxiety. She is certainly a very good person to express her feelings, to express her life. But she's also a really good listener. What you're not really getting in this podcast, because we give her the big stage, we were obviously talking with her. And whenever we were talking, she was like very present, like a very close to what you were saying. You had like this secure feeling of I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you, I'm taking... I'm taking you serious with what you're saying. So some people have this presence in conversations that you feel just very safe in whatever you say. And she certainly had that aura. And what she just said, right, that she um, thinks that you have to deliberately create a life. Um, that is something that I realized over the years, like growing older and through adulthood, that it's you have to make choices and you have to decide which life you want to live and um, learning what you want in life and what life you want to live is not always easy and that especially also for her um, was not an easy beginning. The major adversity in my life was my father. He and I butted heads from the time I was born and uh, it stayed like that for my entire life. Uh, After the, in the 1970s, he stopped talking to me. Um, but it wasn't because I was gay. It had to do with, what I didn't find out until he was 90, was that it had to do with the trip he had taken me on to Bermuda, and then he expected something to happen in the relationship that didn't. And so my father was a very unpredictable, very, um, in certain ways, disturbed guy because of his own childhood. So he had a lot of uh, tremendous emotional difficulties that, you know, he took out on the family and he took out on me. So there was about a 30-year period that we didn't uh, deal with each other. And uh, he remarried and his wife said, do you want me to, she was a psychologist also, and she said, would you like me to create a rapprochement between you and your father? And I said, I left, and I said, sure, you can try knowing what was going to happen. He didn't talk to her for like two months. So I said, 
in a way that was fortunate because then I didn't have to deal with that level of anger and disruption that traps so many of my clients when they keep going back and back and back to families that are uh, completely rejecting or harmful and violent. The thing with gay people is they have to create their own relationships because we don't have role models. For instance, I had a 50-year relationship that was not visible to most of the young people, gay people coming up because we, we ran our own lives, we had our own community. Um, it, was, it was visible to the Identity House crew because I would talk about it. But um, to a large extent, there were no role models. So, you know, you have to create your own life. You have to create your own community. So most of us do. So it's really important that they move away from a negative image of who they are in relation to families that are violent and rejecting. So I've spent my life, you know, moving away from what was negative and damaging and moving towards what was positive and growth producing. And for her, this growth producing and positive impact in her life was meeting Lucy for sure, that what she's what she told us. Yeah, having that strong support in that relationship, like 50 years, I mean, how do you even do that? that <laughs> what is the secret, Lee? <laughs> I tell people two things, adoration and admiration, because you have to adore the person in order to get past the hard times when you can't stand them, and you have to admire them, what they've accomplished, who they are, how they are, um, again, because that has to tide you over the difficult times. So um, even when Lucy was failing, for example, I said to her one day, uh, you know, I asked her if her aide was here, and she didn't answer. And I said again, you know, was your aide here? And she didn't answer. And I said, did you hear me? And she said, I'm not deaf. And I said, well, could you at least bat an eye at me? And she said, I'm not a batting eye type of girl. <laughs> so even when she was failing and couldn't remember certain things, the wit would come through periodically. And that was one of the big things I admired about her. She thought I was stunning. It never stopped. She never stopped thinking that. And, um, you know, we had a lot of similar interests. So you also have to have similar interests. Uh, we shared a love of animals. Uh, we shared a love of social justice. Uh, we were very compatible politically, although she didn't participate, I did. Uh, we both loved theater and music and art and travel. Uh, but we also were quite different. So we lived to a large extent very independently. And then when we came together, uh, we were together. Yeah, people have to find a way of accepting the differences. It's a major component of why relationships fail, mm -hmm. is that people want similarities, but 
the real crux of the matter in relationships is accepting the differences. So, for example, Lucy's not much of a talker. I was. She thought I had verbal diarrhea. <laughs> I thought she was anorexic. <laughs> so those could be major points of contention. But we respected each other's space, so there was a tremendous amount of respect. So she had a heart attack in 2013, and uh, which she diagnosed herself. And we went to the hospital, and sure enough, she was having a heart attack. I said to them, call her doctor, who she'd had for 20 years. So on a Friday night at 9 o'clock, he came to the hospital and convinced her to let them put in a stent. Mm -hmm. And then a week later, she had a pacemaker put in because of her heart. Um, following that, her memory started to get worse. And by 2015, she was diagnosed with dementia. And um, so... 2013, because every time I went to the hospital, I had to sign papers. We had to do living will. We had to do proxies. So neither one of us ever wanted to get married because um, 51% of marriages don't work anyway and didn't see the point. We shared everything, finances and everything we had. And so I said, let's get married because it'll be easier. So I convinced her to get married, and uh, we went to a Saturday Night Live comedy show, Marriage at City Hall. <laughs> now, mind you, she was <laughs> she had a heart attack in July, and this is October, right? <laughs> so she's not doing too well. So we forget that we need witnesses. You have to, you know, apply for the license and then wait three days. We forget all this, so. We get the license, and they say we have to go to the next building upstairs to get it signed by a judge that you can waive the three days. So we go upstairs, and of course, there's a bomb scare. <laughs> so we're sitting upstairs waiting, and they shut down the entire building, and they close us in. Well, we're two hours away from having to complete it, or City Hall is going to close. So about an hour goes by, and I'm starting to scream that we have to get downstairs. So we finally get downstairs with about 45 minutes to spare. Now, mind you, I'm running somebody down who not only has trouble walking, but it's not well. And she's being a really good sport. We get downstairs, and then we realize we don't have witnesses. So... This couple, <laughs> they, they both were uh, Navy personnel, had come into New York to get married, and one of them had a daughter, so they said, we'll be your witnesses. <laughs> so everybody gets signed off, and we go into the room, and they go, do you? And we say yes, <laughs> and they say, okay, you're married. <laughs> so then in December 7th, I had a huge party, we invited like 120 people. Everybody said they were holding their breath, waiting for us to get married, which was a surprise. Mm -hmm. People were crying. It was lovely. Uh, <laughs> Lucy would sit outside with one of the dogs and 
talk to people who came by. And they would sit down and they talked to her and they'd have great conversation. She met people because, you know, they were attracted to the dog. She would tell me all about these great conversations and these people they, she met. And they were meeting someone who was active and intelligent and interesting and was over 70. And uh, I talk to people all the time. Most of my friends are very active. You know, they travel a lot. They take classes. They're docents at the museums and the, uh, the High Line. And uh, we present a different image of what aging is. You know, even though we're perfectly aware of the fact that we're aging, we get together and what do we talk about? Our joints and our <laughs> aches and pains and you know, going to the doctor, but we're also not sitting still. This is exactly why we created this podcast, because we want to talk about aging and with older people and sharing knowledge and wisdom, because it's not only being old, it's much more than this one word that somehow in our society has sometimes this negative meaning. Yes, I mean, and it actually means that you had like a longer period of life behind you, meaning like a bigger perspective, like a bigger meta level that you can see your life from off. And uh, it helps to gain perspective on small obstacles that you might have at a certain point in your life and that it might over like the whole span of a lifetime not be such a big issue and that it's sometimes nice to just trust in life and be like, there's going to be something next after this. At different stages of life, you know different things about yourself because you have different experiences. Uh, different things come into your awareness at different points. Growing up, I always had a very grounded physical sense of myself. Uh, except as a uh, woman when I got to be, you know, puberty age and beyond because there were so many conflicting uh, images that I was confronted. So I certainly had to sort that out. Um, my sexuality was, of course, confusing early on, but didn't stop me from experimenting. So I always had a belief in experimentation and that I would figure things out. Um, and, um, in my 20s, I must have had eight, nine different jobs as I tried to finish college. And I knew I could survive. I always had a grounded sense that I could survive. I always had a grounded sense that I could um, find my way. Um, I had periods of tremendous depression, though, when things weren't working out. Um, because you grow up with a sort of fantasy about what you can accomplish and then you find out what the actuality is of the difference between what you think work is going to be and what it actually is. Um, meeting Lucy was probably the most grounding thing that ever happened to me because at 37, she always had a grounded sense of herself and that was a very different experience because most of my friends were my age and we were all struggling. But she was, she had a stable sense because of the way she was raised. She was raised to be whoever she wanted to be. The family supported her. She could come home from school and her mother would cut the crusts off the bread. I became more grounded in my 30s. 
So by my 40s, I pretty much knew who I was. Uh, but my sense of uh, righteousness about social justice never changed. <laughs> so there were certain things that never changed. Basically, there was so much talent out there, talent, interest, uh, creativity, that you have to look for it, and it will come to you. Um, I tell people that if they really want something badly every night before they go to bed, they have to put out to the universe what they want, but then they have to watch to see what form it comes in, because it doesn't always come in the exact form that you want it to but it will come. The other thing I want yeah. to say is slow it down, right? Decisions and solutions to problems sometimes take time. So in relationships, it's not just one conversation. In life, it's not just one effort. You have to keep working at what you want. You have to keep working at your relationship. It's slow it down. People think because of technology, that it should happen quickly. Human beings do not operate as quickly as technology. You certainly slowed it down because you listened to this podcast. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in to our episode three of Ladies First, Wise Women Talking. Yeah, we learned a lot. Uh, and the last um, lesson was that we have to shout out our dreams and what we want to the universe and then it might come to us. So that's what we're going to do right now. <laughs> But we are also looking forward to our next podcast, uh, which will be out soon. And thanks so much for being our audience.